So if you want to, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. That's where we're at in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. We'll pick up the reading in verse 24, and we'll read through verse 43. Matthew 13, verse 24. Speaking of Jesus, and another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? <clears throat> and he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them. But gather the wheat into my barns. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and became a tree. So the birds of the air uh, come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was leaven, till it was all leaven. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So if you're visiting this morning, or it's the first time you've been in a long time, oh, we just want to welcome you uh, here. We've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse. And this morning we come to Matthew chapter 13. And we're looking at uh, these parables, which are the parables of the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, and the parables of the leaven. Matthew chapter 13 contains 13, uh, sorry, seven kingdom parables that Jesus gave to his disciples. And each of these parables are introduced with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. 
And we've noted in previous studies that the, the English word parable comes from two Greek words. The first is para, which means alongside, and the second is balos, which means to throw. So the word parable means to throw alongside. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking, again, something in the physical, something that's very, very well known to the people, something that's uh, very common to their lives, something that's readily understandable, and he lays it alongside a spiritual truth that he's seeking to communicate to the people so that they might gain an understanding of that spiritual truth. Parables are basically just an illustration used to bring understanding to a more difficult truth. And in these kingdom parables, Jesus is throwing physical imagery alongside the spiritual thing that he's trying to communicate to the people so that they might understand it. And the spiritual thing he's trying to get the people to understand here is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. So that raises a question for us. What is the kingdom of heaven? In Matthew's gospel, and I'm not talking about now, I'm not talking about Mark's gospel or Luke's gospel or John's gospel right now. I'm just talking about Matthew's gospel. When Matthew wrote his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was inspired to use a couple of phrases that we might be tempted to think uh, that they're interchangeable. All right? You might think that they're the same thing. And the two phrases are these. First, the kingdom of heaven. And secondly, the kingdom of God. Okay? These two phrases, they don't mean the same thing. They're not synonymous. In Matthew's gospel, the phrase the kingdom of God is never used to refer to uh, unsaved people. Okay? It's never, it never refers to unsaved people. It always refers to saved peoples. It's a reference to Christians. But the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, that refers to both saved people as well as people who profess to be Christians but are not. So it refers to the great multitudes of people, this enormous crowd that's following Jesus during this point of his ministry, which was made up of those who were sincere in their commitment to give their life to Christ, those that were uh, committed to following Jesus, but it also included a group of people who looked like disciples outwardly, but inwardly they had no desire, they had no commitment at all to follow Jesus with a whole heart. So that's what this phrase, kingdom of heaven, is referring to. And there are people in both categories that are interested in heaven. You know, they're interested in the possibility of heaven. They're interested in knowing how to get to heaven. They're interested in uh, insights into heaven. And, and they're interested in hearing what Jesus has to say about heaven. So 
this is the type of crowd that Jesus is addressing. Those who are genuinely saved and those who are not saved for one reason or another, but they gave the outward appearance that they were followers of Jesus. Now, Jesus is declaring to the disciples about the crowds that were following him, and he's declaring to us today about the hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who claim to be following Christ in the world today. Jesus is giving us insight into the crowds of people, things that we need to understand as his people about any crowd that seemingly appears to be following him. And what he's telling us is that it's never what it appears to be. Even in times of the, the listeners that we looked at, um, you know, the last couple of weeks, the parable of the sowers, Jesus told us that there were four different types of hearers of the word. Those who had a hard heart, which Jesus said there was no hope of the word of God penetrating that person's heart. Those that had a shallow heart. Those that ha uh, had a crowded heart, right? That the, the, their heart was choked out by the cares of the world and they became unfruitful. And the fourth group was those that had the good heart. Those hearts that were hungry for the word of God, ready to receive. You know, those hearts that were fertile ground, which would bring forth much fruit. So Jesus in heaven looks at a crowd a little bit differently than, than we do. And there's something that we need to know about uh, these crowds that claim to know Christ, that are interested in him and are following him, so Jesus seeks to give us insight into all of this. We as Christians should never assume that everyone that makes up, up a religious crowd is sincere about following Jesus. Nor should we assume that everything that everyone does in that crowd represents God. They don't right? They did not then, and they do not today. You know, we can get excited. I think it's just in our nature as people. We can get excited, you know, because when we think of something that's important in life, you know, we want to see large crowds kind of gather around that, right? Crowds can get us excited, especially when they're related to Jesus and the things of the kingdom. But Jesus wants us to know that not everything is what it seems to be. This morning, we're going to be looking at these three parables. And, and these three parables, they illustrate that not only can we not assume that everything that is taught and being practiced under the banner of Jesus Christ or under a banner of Christian, Christianity is of God. We also need to be aware that some portion of all of that has its origin in the devil. And in these three parables that are before us this morning, Jesus reveals to us three things that say, how Satan tries to infiltrate in order to negate 
or to nullify the effect of the kingdom of God and the work of God's people in the world. So the first parable is the parable of the wheat and tares. And Jesus says, verse 24, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And we're told in verse 29 that this field is a wheat field. Verse 25, but while men slept, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, a tear is also called a darnell. And darnells, they're weeds, right? They're a poisonous, noxious weed. And when they're planted with wheat in their early to mid stages, they, they look exactly like wheat. In fact, you can't tell the difference between the two. But in time, the difference becomes apparent because ultimately the wheat stalk develops, you know, uh, a head of wheat. You know, the tares will never do that. So for a long time, the tare, it looks exactly like wheat. Planting tares among the wheat and how they look exactly like during the stages of their development, it's something that was very familiar to the people that Jesus is addressing uh, back in the day. And this practice of an evil person planting tares in the fields of a competing farmer, I mean, it was widespread enough that the Roman government enacted laws to make that a criminal offense. Verse 26, we read, But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. Initially, the tares, they go undetected, but after a while, as they grow alongside the wheat, it becomes evident that there tares that there are tares among the wheat. Verse 27. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, "Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares?" And he said to them, "An enemy has done this." The servants said to him, "Do you want us then to go and gather them up?" You know, when the tares appear, the servants ask the owner. How is it possible that there are tares among the wheat? And the owner said, you know, that's the work of the enemy. And the servants then asked the owner if they should go out and pull up the tares. And that's what you'd think the owner would want. But, he says, verse 29, no. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest and at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the owner tells his servants, you know, not to pull up the tares because then some of the wheat would also be uh, uprooted. By the time that the tares become evident, you have quite a bit of growth that uh, is above the ground that's visible, right? But also, you have quite a bit of growth below the ground in the root system. What happens is the tares and the wheat, they become hopelessly uh, intermixed, so you can't tear up the tares without pulling up some of the wheat. So the owner says to leave them alone for now. In verse 36, says, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and he 
his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares and of the field. And he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. And here Jesus, of course, he's speaking of himself. He's the one that sows the good seed. In verse 38, he says, the field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. You know, it seems pretty clear to me. At least um, Jesus just says, the field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom or Christians. All around the world, God has planted Christians. <clears throat> and God goes. Uh, Jesus goes on to say that the tares are the sons of the devil. You know, they're the ones that look like Christians, but they're not Christians. You know, they may have a verbal profession uh, of Jesus, but they're not born again. They're not Christians. Well, what's the difference between a tear in the wheat? What's the difference between someone who merely professes Jesus Christ and a true born again believer? Jesus gives us three things that differentiate the tares from the wheat. The first, the tares never bear fruit, right? They talk the talk, but they, they don't walk the walk, right? There'll never be any evidence in their life that God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit has come into their life and changed them. There's no visible change in their life. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible for a person who's born again, a person who has God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit come into their life and there not be at least some change that occurs in that life as a result, right? So the key of identification, the first key of identification is fruit. Jesus said, the tree is known by its fruit. That's how you tell what kind of tree it is, right? It's by its fruit. And Jesus also said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. Jesus is saying that there are those who profess him and do all kinds of good things, great things in his name, but there's not been a changed life that goes along with it. It's all outward. And in verse 41, Jesus said, the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness. So the second identifier is that they offend. They cause people to stumble. That's the second way you identify the tares. And the third way you identify them is they practice lawlessness. Behind all the words, behind uh, all of the appearance, there isn't a change of life that is evidence of salvation. 
their lives are marked by disobedience to the word of God and lawlessness. Instead of a life that's characterized by obedience to the word of God, you know, you're going to want to circle in your mind at least that word practice. You know, I don't want anybody to come up after the study uh, saying to me, you know, sometimes, Gary, I fall short. Sometimes I lose my temper and say things I shouldn't. Sometimes, you know, uh, even though I'm trying hard as I can, you know, uh, I do things that I don't, I don't mean to do, that I shouldn't do. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? No. Jesus is talking about the person who practices lawlessness. It's a habitual practice. They're unrepentant. It's a lifestyle for them. It's the dominant thing in their life. As Christians, you know, our lives should be characterized by obedience to the word of God. And sin is the less frequent failure of our lives. We don't practice it. And in verse 39, Jesus continues and says, The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness. Jesus is saying that there will be a separation of the tares and the wheat at the end of the age. It's speaking of a coming judgment where the tares will be, verse 42, cast into the furnace of fire, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is talking about Gehenna, or the eternal lake of fire. It's a place of eternal judgment. You know, it's a horrible place. And nobody in their right mind wants to uh, go there. Wailing speaks of the emotional horror of Gehenna. And the gnashing of teeth, it speaks of the physical agony of hell. Of hell. And in verse 43, Jesus continues, Then the righteous shall, uh, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And Jesus is saying, here the righteous will be gathered together into the barns. It speaks, it's speaking of heaven where true believers will be blessed forever and ever. Then Jesus exhorts his listeners. He exhorts his disciples to listen up, to think this through. He says to them, he who has ears to hear let him hear. Now, what's interesting about this parable to me, uh, you know, as Jesus explains this parable, it's in the, the exact order of the judgment that we see in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, chapters 19 through 21, we see the judgment of the righteous, and then it moves on to God's dealing, uh, sorry, the judgment of the unrighteous. Did I say that right? the judgment of the unrighteous, and then God moves on to the dealing of uh, his dealings with the righteous. And Jesus is saying here through this parable that this form of opposition 
by the devil against what God is doing in the world is going to go on until the end of this age. But one day, God will deal with it once and for all. He'll deal with it with finality. The tares will be separated from the wheat, the false from the true. But in the meantime, the reality is that we as Christians live in and minister in this mix of false and true believers. This mix is among us in the world in which uh, the church finds itself. The lesson is this. Whenever you have a legitimate work of God going on in a church, any, anything that is for the kingdom of God and the expansion of Christianity in the world, Satan will attempt to disrupt it, to spoil it. Uh, he wants to impact it in a negative way by planting um, false Christians within that work. And some of them that are planted within that work, they, they know perfectly well what they're doing, right? The devil is willing to take those people who follow him with zeal and assign them to a church, have them sit in a chair, have them pray against all that's going on, or they try to influence that work. They try to you know, guide it in their direction. Some people know exactly what they're doing and they'll be present in any and every kind of work that is advancing the kingdom and there are others though and i think this is probably the more common uh scenario but there are others that are there they're tares they're planted by the devil and they have no idea that they're being used by him but they are being used by the devil they give the appearance of being Christians, but they aren't followers of Christ. Well, why does the devil do this? And Jesus tells us why in verse 41. It's in order to offend. It's in order to stumble, to confuse people about who Jesus really is, what Christianity is really about, what a Christian is supposed to be. The devil is seeking to confuse people and muddy up the waters so that it causes doubt in people's minds. Well, the word offend there in the verse is the Greek word scandalon. It's where we get the English word scandal. And it means to stumble someone. And in this context, it means that this tear, this person, who's being used by the devil, is put there to stumble others in their search for God, in their search to discover the truth about Christianity and the truth about Jesus Christ. They're there to stumble that person during a time where they're coming to the decision to follow Christ. The way they scandalize or stumble that person who is searching is by claiming to be a Christian while living a lifestyle of lawlessness. This is how it works. It, it some, works something like this. You know, this person attends such and such a church on Sundays, 
And everyone in the town knows that they, they attend that church, you know. But the rest of the week, they live nothing like what a Christian should live like. Or maybe it's in the workplace, you know, and they let everyone in the workplace know that they're a Christian. At least that's the claim they, they make. But the life they live in the workplace and the life they live outside of the workplace, it's nothing like the life that a Christian should live. You know, or maybe it's a student in school who claims to be a Christian, but they live a life that's more ungodly than those that aren't even saved. And the result is when a person sees them, they say to themselves, man, if that's what a Christian looks like, then I don't, I don't want it. You know, they're all hypocrites. If that's the type of person Christianity produces, then I don't want to be any, I don't want to have anything to do <clears throat> with them. I don't want to be a Christian if that's what a Christian is supposed to be. You know, if that's the type of person that goes to that church, then everyone attending that church must be the same type of person, right? And you can see how far reaching the damage can be as a result of just one lousy tear planted by the devil. You know, you begin to understand how many people can be scandalized or turned away from Christianity and a relationship with Jesus Christ as a result. You know, just one tear can ruin the reputation of Jesus Christ. They can ruin the reputation of churches in the town. They can ruin the reputation of Christians, all because of one tear. People make up their minds about Jesus based on others who claim to be Christians but are not, right? And those people, they don't even realize that they're just getting played by the devil. I mean, they thought they were watching a Christian, and without realizing it, what they were watching was a tear, a false Christian, and it wasn't a Christian at all. And one of the ways Satan uses people to stumble others to subvert God's work by, is by planting false Christians. They join a church. And so it's important for us to understand this. So we don't get confused with it also. We don't get confused by it. It's important to realize that everyone who claims to be a Christian, who claims to be a follower of Christ, is not really a Christian. Not everybody that makes that claim is, is really a Christian. Not everyone who regularly attends church is a Christian. And not everyone that comes to church is seeking the truth. We need to understand these things. Some come solely to disrupt the work that God intends to do within the church. And if you're not a believer here today, but you're trying to come to a, a decision whether or not to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to understand that you're not to make that decision based upon any person, what they do or what they don't do. You need to make the decision solely on the basis of Jesus Christ
his life and his teaching. Even the best Christians are going to stumble and fall short. We're not going to be perfect until we get to heaven. And Jesus calls us to make our decisions about the God of the Bible and about him as our Savior solely based on him and him alone. One of Jesus' titles in the Bible, you find it in Revelation, is that he is the singular, uniquely him and no one else. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the only one we can look at. He's the only one we can base our decision on regarding God the Father, sin, and salvation. He's the only one we can look at to come to a decision uh, regarding who Jesus claimed to be, the Son of God and God the Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Satan is willing to use people to confuse you and cloud that message of the gospel. And Jesus would tell you, do not fall for it. The devil can get so much mileage out of, out of his tears. It's not just hypocrisy that he uses. He can plant a, a tear in a church, and maybe they're in that church for a long time, maybe five or ten years, and you know, then they leave the church, and they begin to talk about the church. Yeah, you know, I used to go to that church. You know, I, I tried Christianity out for a long time. I, I didn't, I, it didn't answer my questions, the questions that I had. I really didn't find any satisfaction in going to church, you know. I didn't really like the pastor because he's, you know, a yada, 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 fill in the blank. So now I'm into yoga or whatever. Now that's what I'm doing. And there's a person who's so easily influenced by others. When he overhears this, he thinks to himself, wow, really? Man, I don't want to waste five or 10 years of my life going to church and reading the Bible, which by the way, nobody can understand. You know, I'll save myself some time. I'll just scratch you know, going to church off my list. I'll try to find out if there's a God out there some other way. You know, man, I'm glad I heard this person share his experience, you know? And that person just gets blindsided by the, the devil and, he, and they don't even know it. They have no idea what just happened to them. The Apostle John declares in 1 John 2.19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. These tares, they can be very, very crafty. They know the limits and the lines that they can cross and not cross. They know what will and will not get the attention of church leadership. They know how to work the system and they know how to poison a work through gossip and innuendo. You know, they're not as flagrant and open in their sin as the wolf or that outright false teacher 
or the person you would have to break fellowship with, you know, because of sin. These tares, they know how to fly, you know, just below the radar. And it can be very, very hard to identify them at times. It can be hard to pin them down, to point them out. And it can be very frustrating. And that's the whole parable here that Jesus gives us. And our temptation, and Jesus knew it would be a temptation. That's why he addresses it as part of this parable. Our temptation is to come to the same conclusion that the servants uh, of the master came to. You know, Jesus, just give us the word. We'll clean house. You know what? We know what we know how to handle those tares. You know what? We'll just tear them up and we'll throw them out of the church. You know, you have nothing to worry about. We'll take care of it, right? When Jesus gave the interpretation to his disciples, right, the future apostles, Jesus is speaking to leaders of the church. This is how it often works with uh, the pastor and the leadership in the local church. They know the Bible. They're dealing with people all the time, and they know that this kind of thing goes on. So the pastor, he decides to expose these tears. You know, the leadership of the church decides, you know what, we're going to expose of these tears, uh, expose these tears for the fraud that they are, right? So the pastor, he begins to preach an unending a series of the most fiery, scathing sermons that he can preach week after week, service after service. And the leadership of the church then, they take up the torch and together they begin to hang the people over the flames of hell until they're medium rare. And they just start laying the lashes on the people. Every week the message is, you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And don't get me wrong. You know, there's a time and place for that, but not every week. You know, the problem with that approach is that it doesn't affect the tares, right? They just sit back and they just enjoy the show. They just enjoy seeing the church crumble in that way. It's completely wasted on the tares, right? But the dear, soft-hearted saint that loves God and just wants to serve him, I mean, they're the ones that just get hammered in that type of situation. All they want to do is live a holy life for God. But as those lashes get laid upon them, you know, they'll then go home and, and grab a belt out of the drawer and they'll just start laying lashes upon themselves, condemning them for not measuring up. And it's not long until they just get crushed by it all. And the damage can just be so horrendous. And it doesn't affect the tares one little bit. It just damages the wheat, just like Jesus said. There's no getting around the fact that wheat and tares are going to be found together in every church, right, until the judgment day. Even the greatest emphasis on purity 
And holiness will not change that. And by all means, you know, we need to focus on holiness and purity. But we also need to understand that we will never have a perfectly pure church without any tears. I know that as a pastor. You know, you need to understand that as someone who attends this church, we're not perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. So the point of the parable, whatever, whenever you have a genuine work of God through the Holy Spirit, there will always be opposition to it. Satan will plant his people in the middle in order to discredit. It's opposition through false Christians. And that's the reality. And that's why Jesus wants us to be aware of it. The point of it for us as believers is don't let it distract you. Don't let it trip you up or stumble you. Don't let it pull you away from what God has called you to be and what he's called you to do for the advancement of the kingdom. Leave it to him. Leave it all to him, and he will take care of the tie, uh, tears in his timing. Now, the second uh, parable, and I know maybe some of you are watching the clock going, man, that was just one. We got two more to go. The second one, third one, they're not so long. They'll go a little faster. But now for uh, Satan's second means of opposition to the work of God in the world, Matthew 13, 31 and 32. Another parable, parable, parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed his, in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and, became, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Mustard plants are just that. They're plants. They're not trees, right? So in terms of growth, we're talking about something that is phenomenal here. It's actually unnatural, right? And the most common interpretation of this parable goes something like this. The kingdom of heaven is going to start, it's going to start out very small. It's just going to be, begin very small. But it's going to experience great growth. And it's going to spread across the world. And it's going to win everyone to Jesus Christ. And it will close out the age with great glory and great success. And as much as I would like that to be the truth, as much as I would like that to be the interpretation of this parable, that's not what Jesus is saying through this parable. right? Here's why that interpretation can't be right. Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of heaven will start small in size and achieve great size in the world. But he's also teaching that it would not uh, accomplish that, it would not accomplish that growth through purity and holiness, through faithfulness to God's word. It would happen through compromise. To properly interpret the parables, there's a law of interpretation that has to be taken into consideration here. And that law is called 
the law of expositional constancy. And when you look at the parables, Jesus often identifies what each part of that parable means. Those are the easy parables to interpret. In some cases, we don't understand each part of the parables in themselves. So that's why Jesus says uh, in Mark's gospel, when Jesus gave the, the parable of the sowers, Jesus said, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, when you run into an element that isn't ex explained or defined by Jesus in the parables, you're to go back to the parable of the sowers. You look back and you see that element and how it was used there and apply it in the same way to the next parable, right? That's being consistent in your interpretation. If you do this, you're not going to get off track in your Bible study, in your Bible reading. So the, in the parable of the sowers, that's the key to understanding all the parables. So that's what we do. We back to the parable of the sowers. And in, the par in, in that parable, the words represented Satan and his demonic realm right? So they have to represent the same thing in this parable. So what Jesus is teaching here is the kingdom of heaven will grow to tremendous size, but unfortunately, the birds, Satan and evil are going to find a place in it too. So what Jesus is warning us against here is false growth. When growth in size becomes more important in the body of Christ or more important in the local church than holiness and faithfulness and integrity to the word of God, when size and growth becomes the focus within the church, you're going to have something that Satan will flock to and build nests in. And he'll make himself right at home in that kind of work. If you look around the world at what calls itself Christianity, you'll see what Jesus is saying here is actually true. I mean, there are groups out there that, that they market churches, gro church growth seminars, right? How to grow your church and increase the tithes, right? They never emphasize you know, Bible teaching as a key. They never emphasize reading your Bible or personal holiness or witnessing and sharing your faith, praying together as a church body. What they emphasize, it's just all schemes, how to work things to get people into the pews, right? Demographic studies, asking people, what they want to hear, what they want in a church. You know, they'll tell you, you need to tell you what you need to do to be relevant in today's culture. They'll show you just schemes, how to draw people through events that actually cross borders into secularism. If you want a big church, you can't talk about things that alienate people. You know, you certainly can't talk about 
abortion or homosexuality. You know, don't tell people they're sinners in need of a savior. Keep it generic. You know, keep it upbeat. Keep it positive. Tell people how good they are and that God loves them, that God wants them to be healthy and wealthy and happy. You know, tell them that if they have faith, they can speak their own reality into existence. And that's what's going on in many churches across the world today. And the result is it just gets a bunch of people into a room, but none of it has anything to do with godliness. It's just a bunch of people in a room. And the devil says, man, I know how to get comfortable in something like that. And I know how to take it over. And he, then he goes after the top branches. It's church growth through compromise, right? Rather than being faithful to the things of the Lord. If I have to compromise the word of God, the message of the cross, salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, if we have to compromise that for church growth, you know what? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. You know, I'm not going to do it. The Bible is relevant. In my mind, the Bible is cross-cultural and it's cross-generational. It speaks to the youngest person and to the oldest person. It's the only thing that has the answers for the problems that plague our world. And the answer is Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust the Lord to build his church as he promised. We're going to stick to the Bible. Finally, Satan not only opposes genuine works of the Lord by planting false Christians in the midst and encouraging false growth through compromise, but he also does it by introducing false doctrine. And that's the parable of the leaven. Verse 33, another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now, again, the popular interpretation of this parable is that the leaven represents the gospel, and it will be preached throughout the whole world, and ultimately, Everyone will be saved. You see, if you take a little leaven, a little yeast, and you put it into a lump of dough, pretty soon it will permeate the entire dough. The problem with this interpretation is that the listeners of this parable in Jesus' day would have never come to that conclusion. That's the wrong interpretation. From the Old Testament on into the New Testament, when leaven is used symbolically, it almost always is used to speak of sin, to speak of evil, to speak of corruption, because that's the basic function of leaven, and that's what it accomplishes. It permeates, it corrupts, it puffs up. And when we go back... Uh, you know, to the parable of the sower, since the meal here that this parable is speaking of is 
is made up of wheat. When we go back to the parable of the soils, the seed, the wheat there, the seed there represents the word of God. And what you have is the corruption of the word of God through false doctrine. The devil comes in and he tries to stumble and confuse people. He tries to come against the advancement of the kingdom through false doctrine. And you know what? <laughs> I don't know if you, if you uh, watch these kinds of things, but man, there is so much false doctrine today blowing through the church. You know, it's hard to keep track of. I mean, it's just mind-boggling how much bad teaching and false doctrine there is out there and how many Christians don't follow the example of the Bereans. Acts 17, 11 says, these, speaking of the Bereans, were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They weren't willing to believe what was preached just because the apostle Paul said it, right? They checked out his teaching. They compared it with the word of God. And sadly, it seems that today that too many Christians just don't take the time to check out what's being taught. For me, I just want to teach the Bible. I love the Word of God. I want to be an encouragement to everyone else who loves the Word of God. <clears throat> I want to stand before you each Sunday and address those people that love the Word of God and help them make application into their life from the Word of God. And those people who aren't saved, I want to do the work of the evangelist and encourage them to come to Christ and receive forgiveness for their sins. You know what? I don't have the energy or the desire or the time to follow the nonsense out there and try to pass it on as Christian doctrine so that I can be mainstream. It's not what I'm about. And there's a lot, there's a lot of silly, heretical teaching out there even in our town, and many Christians, it seems, aren't well-versed enough in the Word to discern the teaching as false teaching. You know, I don't know if you guys watch much Christian television. I mean, there's good stuff on Christian television, but the bulk of it, in my opinion, is just embarrassing, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.21 tells us, Test all things and hold fast what is good. If you sit down and try to watch two or three hours of Christian television with that type of mindset, you won't walk away with very much that's good. Not many people watching Christian television is checking out what's being said with the Word of God, right? People today, they're just lapping it up. They're just drinking it it in, false doctrine and all. And it's just scary. We need to be men and women of the word, right? We can't afford to allow false, false doctrine 
in our midst. The stakes are too high. Heaven and hell are hanging in the balances, right? Souls are hanging in the balances. And we are Christ's representative here on this earth. And we must have respect for the word of God and handle it with reverence. We need to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God. Workers who do not need to be ashamed, rightfully dividing the word of truth. Dear brothers and sisters, we need to take an unwavering stand for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. There is no uh, salvation, it says Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, unless a person is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on to say, you must be born again. We cannot compromise our message to get more people into the church. We cannot compromise our message to avoid offending people uh, in an effort to gain friends. Each of us one day will stand before the Lord and will be required to give an account. Each of us on that day want to hear the Lord to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth saying, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. He's scheming and seeking to stumble people, to confuse them, to cloud the issue so people will not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he's working to that end inside the church. Believe it or not, we're not to be unaware of his devices. And we are to be alert and serious about our walks with the Lord that we're not taken unaware by these things. You know, it's not a game. 7.8 billion people in the world, over 3.5 billion people have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, let alone hearing that salvation is only found in the name of Jesus Christ. God wants all of those 7.8 billion people to wind up in heaven. And we need to carry the message of the gospel accurately, unwaveringly, unapologetically to Truckee and into the world. It's important to Jesus that we never assume that all that's being taught and preached under the banner of Christianity is of God. We need to be aware that there's a fair portion of all of it that actually has its origin in the devil. Three ways the devil attempts to disrupt and, and, uh, disrupt and uh, nullify, to impede the advancement of the kingdom of God. One, by infiltrating 
anything good that God is doing with false Christians. Two, by, by um, encouraging false growth through compromise. Three, by introducing false doctrine into the kingdom of heaven. For those of you that love the Lord, this is a lesson. Don't let it trip you up. It's, it's real, but don't let it detour you. It's happening, and it's going to continue until the end of the age. You stay faithful. Stay faithful to what God has called you to do and leave everything else to him. He will deal with it in his timing. The, the biggest lesson for those who may be here or watching online that have not yet given their life to Jesus Christ, have not yet received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Jesus is telling you that you cannot come to conclusions about him and the God of the Bible through looking at anyone other than him and the Bible. There's too many counterfeits out there. There's too much heresy out there. And there's too much at stake. Your eternity is at stake. And I pray that every single person who isn't saved today will ask Jesus into their heart and receive forgiveness of sins. It's just like receiving any gift, right? You just reach out and you take it to yourself. Salvation is a gift. You just need to receive it. You know, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, if you're watching online, give me a call at the church office. Let, let us get a Bible into your hands. I'm never afraid that anyone will come to a wrong conclusion about Jesus from reading the Bible. You know, don't leave here. If you're not a believer here today, don't leave here without settling the issue in your heart who Jesus is, who he really is. He's Lord. He's God. And he desires a loving relationship with you. You need to turn from your sin and turn to him with all your heart. And if you'll do that, Jesus will cleanse you, he'll forgive you, and he'll make you a new creation. You just have to humble yourself and come to him, sorry for the wrongs that you've done, and just ask him to come into your life. Let's pray, and we'll end the study there. Father God, again, just so thankful for your word. And, and Lord, I thank you for the warnings that you give us in your word so that we won't be stumbled, we won't be confused. Lord, I thank you for the encouragement to stay faithful in the midst of, of the uh, opposition, in the midst of the infiltration, just to be faithful and run for you, Lord, and let you handle the rest, just to be faithful to those things that you've called us to do, Lord, keeping our eyes fixed on you. Lord, I thank you for that encouragement. And Lord, I pray that it would find its way in each of our hearts, Lord. I pray for those that don't know you this morning, God, that you would speak to them powerfully even now and just reveal your heart to them, reveal your love for them, reveal your willingness to forgive them as they turn to you and ask you to come into their life to forgive them of their sin and to be their Savior. Lord, I give you praise and I give you glory. We thank you for your word and we trust, Lord, 
that you will accomplish today in our lives the purpose that you uh, recorded this word and sent it out this morning for, God. We give you praise in your name, Jesus. Amen.